Jeremiah in chapter 57. Let's look to the Lord in prayer together, shall we? See, open the word, may he bless our time. Father, meet with us tonight, we pray. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, revive us again, that thy people might rejoice in thee. So often we come seeking, and so often we ask, so often we pray, so often through our uh, faults and our foibles and failures of life, we know how much we need you to do a work in our heart and our life to continue that great work of shaping and moulding us after the precious image of your own son. And so often we fall short and we come uh, crying to thee, pleading with thee, and yet many times we do not fulfil the requirements that would bring about that revival that we so often desperately need and say that we are craving. So I pray, Father, that you would bless our time tonight your work in our hearts. We thank you for each one who's here. We know there are many who are not able to be here. We thank you and praise you for the prayers of the saints that have already been put on the altar that even now ascend into the very presence of God to pray for us as we meet together. Uh, we may be small in number, but we can be big in heart. And we can also not only be small in number, but we can be mighty in spirit. So I pray that you would help us, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I did uh, forget this morning to remind folks to please pray for Brother Abdu and Sister Judy uh, roaming amongst the pyramids and the sands of Egypt at this time. Uh, I know they're very passionate about their opportunities for ministry uh, while they're in Egypt. Uh, it's a very difficult place to minister. So please be uh, in prayer for them that the Lord would undertake for their particular need. We'll start this evening by showing you a bottle of water. Now, this bottle can actually be bought in a large pack of 24. And depending on where you buy it, will determine the value of it. If you bought this in Coles, because none of us are shopping at Woolies after the way they harassed our brother Branko. I hope you're listening, Coles. We're, we're exalting you, but... Uh, it would work out around 65 cents a bottle. Of course, if you were in the United States and you went to the water machine at Costco, it would cost you 25 cents, which sounds cheap until you change an American dollar into an Aussie dollar and it's no longer uh, 25 cents, it's now 100 and something. Anyway, uh, if you went into Coles and bought one of these on your way out at, uh, at the checkout, the service checkout, not the self-service checkout, uh, it'll cost you a dollar. If you went to a particular restaurant, depending on which one it was, uh, at La Porqueta, it'd be a dollar eighty. Uh, if you went to somewhere really flash, like uh, the Langham, and you asked for a bottle of water, not just a jug of water, uh, it would uh, probably cost you four or five dollars. At some service stations, it might cost you, depending on where the servo is, it might even cost you more. I still, to this day, remember in 1976, crossing the Nullarbor Plains, and uh, at a time when certain drinks cost 20 cents, paying $3 for a bottle of water. 
and that's back when water in bottles was quite new. So where you came from, for some, determines the value. I mentioned the Langham because if you were to be dining at the Langham, maybe somebody gave you a voucher, invited you for dinner there, a normal dinner at the Langham uh, for perhaps a Saturday night would cost you $110 to $120 per person. Whereas if your friend invited you out to dinner and took you to Macca's, they might get away with change out of 20 bucks for the two of you. Be close, but maybe that way. So what I'm saying is sometimes the value is determined by where you got it. Or the value is determined by where you are. And sometimes the joy that we receive also depends on the company or the quality of the company that we're in. For instance, if it was a family affair, a family dinner, it wouldn't matter if it was the Langham or McDonald's. With family, there is a familiarity and, and, and uh, just a, a can be, should be a sweet spirit. We enjoyed that over Christmas with family that visited. We enjoyed it last year when all the family, uh, sorry, year before last when all the family came down. I think I enjoyed it. I'm still trying to recover from it 14 months later. When I say this, you know, the truth is, according to the word of God, your value, you as a person, is not determined by where you came from. You hear that? It's not determined by where you came from. I mean, I hope next time our friends, uh, Ryan and Joanna, visit, we will all greet them with a very hearty, nasal, ni hao ma. Can you all say that? Ni hao ma. That's how you say hello in Chinese, in Mandarin. Okay? And, uh, you know, it's a wonderful language, the Chinese language. Tim would remember this from the Gospel in Genesis. But, uh, you know, so uh, it doesn't matter where a person comes from, they have value because our real value is not by where we are or who we're with or what we bought or who got us what. Our real value is found in what does God say of us. And God says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. One of the things that Romans chapter 1 is very clearly making reference to is the revelation of God's creation in us that we suppress that revealed knowledge by refusing to acknowledge made by God, fearfully and wonderfully made, a marvellous work of God. Every person in this room is different. Even those who have got blonde hair, dark hair, red hair, no hair. Every one of us is different. Even if Fiona was as bald as a badger, there is not a person on the planet that's like Fiona Malari. There are no other Sharon Hustlers, and I can assure you, one is enough for, for the whole world. One is enough. Right? Think, you are unique. You are different, just like everybody else. Doesn't make you feel so special when you say that, but yeah. Now, this is what we need to understand. Just as God has made us uniquely, God uniquely has laid down in His Word what He requires for you and I to be revived. And when we speak about revival, in some cases it's talked about as a renewing spirit. It's, it's as is one is being quickened or one is being raised back from the dead. 
or one has been in a state of, of unconsciousness and needs to be revived. They are totally unaware of where they are, what's happened to them. They may be laying unconscious on the floor, but they are still alive. They know nothing. They may be able to have some senses where they can feel pain or whatever, but they are really, as we would say, out of it. And they need to be revived, brought back to a reality of where am I? And many times that's the first thing the medicos will say to them, you know, what's your name? My name is Fred Snurt. No, your name's not Fred Snurt. What is your name? Where are you? How many fingers am I holding up? And all these hands will be up. I mean, and if their eyeballs are rattling around in their head, they can't tell you whether you've got five fingers or 50 fingers. I mean, you know, because they are coming out of a state of unconsciousness to being conscious. Now, in order for you and I to enjoy spiritual revival, God-given revival, we need to be in a state of consciousness. We can't be dizzy and giddy about this. We need to know what is God's requirement to be revived? Is it, is it recorded anywhere in the word of God? Well, yeah, it is. It's here in Isaiah in chapter 57 and in verse 15. And the Lord is speaking and says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Who's that? Who is that? That's the God of heaven. That's the God who made you. That's the God who said you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the God who, who gives you breath. That's the one who upholds you. He holds your breath in the very palm of his hand. This is the God of eternity. This is the one who inhabits eternity. This is the one that, that, of whom uh, when Stephen was preaching before the Jewish council, he said, behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Solomon, uh, when he was right with God, had this passion that was misplaced. And he said, I want to build God a place of dwelling. And it was God who said, what are you going to build me? I mean, to the Jewish mentality, and we, we never ever fully comprehend this, to the Jewish mentality, God lived in a tent. The God of the heavens, the king of the universe, the, the one who, who made all things, who uphold all things, who one day will fold up all things. He lived in a tent. That stung David in the heart. He said, this is not possible. I'm in a palace. And the true and the living God, the thrice holy God, is in a tent. I've got to do something about this. Nice gesture, David, except you've got a problem. God don't live in a tent. He's not restricted to this tent. Moreover, to the Jewish leadership and those involved in the priesthood, God wasn't just in the tent. He was in there sitting on this little gold box. That doesn't make a very big God. If you look at the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, we're looking at something that's just over a metre and a bit long. And maybe on the old scale, 18 inches wide. I mean, I could sit on that thing and I'd take up a fair bit of room. God is not confined. And that's why he says, the high and lofty one, the one who inhabits eternity. And he says now, 
I dwell in the high and the holy place with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit. It seems to me that here in the scripture, God is speaking of a second person dwelling with him. A person who is contrite and of an humble spirit. Who could that possibly be? With whom does God dwell? Well, if we look at at the very essence of the person we refer to as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is he not of a contrite spirit? Is he not of a humble being? Did he not humble himself and take upon him the fashion of a man and being made as man, humbled himself and became a servant? The epitome of all that that is gracious and humble is found here. And he says here, now, I want you to understand that the word contrite here has two meanings depending on which way you look at it. It's, if you use it as a noun, it means dust. Dust. If you use it as an adjective, it means broken. Broken. It's interesting when the Lord Jesus came, he came to seek the brokenhearted and yet he himself was broken we sing of the brokenness of christ we sing of the blood that was broken and poured out for love of lost souls and how the lord jesus humbled himself and there in the messianic psalm of psalm 22 he says i am no man but a worm to see himself as being made so lowly that's the high and lifted up one, the high and the holy. This is his lofty one. But notice then what he says. He says, is to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, humble means to be laid low. Someone who has been laid low. If you and I would have revival from God, we need to be humbled. If you and I would have a spirit of reviving of the heart, we must be the contrite ones. We must be as dust. We must see ourselves as the lowest of the low. We must be a broken people. The problem is when we understand uh, the truth of God's word, it can make us proud and haughty. It can make us lofty and lifted up. In my Bible, the only one who gets lofty and lifted up is God. And I'm not him. And neither are you. What God requires of all his children to enjoy spiritual revival, and notice there that revival touches two areas of our being, one concerning the spirit and one concerning the heart. David understood the concept of having a wounded spirit. David in Psalm 51 pleaded with God to renew a right spirit within me. He asked God to do a renovation, a detonation, renovation, whatever you want to call it, to make him in a right attitude toward God. Why? Because he's had a wrong attitude. He's exercised wrong affections, made wrong choices. He's tried to cover his sin, even though he himself had told us that he that covered his sin shall not prosper. And yet there he was trying to hide his sin. And the humility that came with it, yea, even the humiliation that came with it, 
when Nathan the prophet came in to tell him a little bedtime story. So that there was a poor man with one little lamb and was like a child to him, like his own daughter. And it ate at his table. And you, know, and he, you can picture in your mind this man with this beautiful little lamb. And then there's this wealthy man who's got flocks and herds and tents and servants and abundance. And, and when he has a visitor, he comes and he takes the poor man's lamb and butchers the poor man's lamb to feed his, his travelling guests. And David was so incensed. David was so angry. You can see him sitting there on his throne and pounding his fist saying, the man that has done this shall surely die. How could he be so cruel? How could he be so wicked? This is, not, this is just not happening. And then you can see the tears streaming down the face of Nathan the prophet when he said, Thou art the man. I'm not talking about some stranger, David. I'm talking about you, O king. This is what you did. You did this. And David, in Psalm 51, we have the Spirit of God there recording the prayer that came from the heart of David, the sinner the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, crying out to God for cleansing, for forgiveness, and ultimately to renew a right spirit within me, a right attitude toward God. He had it all wrong. We can surely say David was humbled and David was contrite. And sometimes the humility that God gives to us comes via the hands of others, the voice of others the actions of others. But what God wants is to have humility in his people that comes by choice from us. That I'm going to, I'm going to seek to humble myself before Almighty God, not because of what others are seeing or what others are saying or what others are doing, but because this is what my God wants from me. My Heavenly Father wants me to humble myself. My Heavenly Father wants me to be laid low, to be as dust. My Heavenly Father wants me to have that of a broken and a contrite spirit. As David also said, thou wilt not despise. And God says here, this is, these are the ones I will revive. I'll revive the spirit of the humble. I'll revive the heart of the contrite ones. We do well to ask ourselves, how are we in our assessment? Now, one of the best passages, I think, for revival is found in James in chapter 4. James chapter 4, if you can turn your Bible there as well. In verse 1 it says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come then hence even of your lusts that war in your members. He's not talking about church members. He's talking about our, within our own body. It says, Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. Now, at this point in time, we need to acknowledge that all the things that are needful to be addressed in this people that are receiving this letter from James, they are a very proud Jewish genealogy. They are very proud, even though they are suffering, 
they are still very proud of who they are and where they come from. They still have something of the spirit of the Pharisees that said, we were Abraham's seed and never in bondage to any man. They prided themselves in the, in the historic leadership of the great man of God, Moses. But the reality is they had no kindred spirit with Moses or with anyone else for that matter. Isn't it interesting? And I find that as I was studying this out, these three men that stood out, Abraham, Job and David, on occasion of their converse with God, where they were confronted and challenged by God, seemingly in the very presence of God Almighty, each one of them used the same phrase of themselves. I am dust. I am broken. I am humbled. I am laid low. Remember the response of Isaiah when he saw the king high and lifted up? And he said that he just abhorred himself. He saw himself suddenly in the eyes of everyone. Isaiah is a statesman, a man of, of great position. But in the, in the very presence of the true and the living God, Isaiah saw himself as unclean. Unclean and dwelling in the midst of an unclean people. With unclean lips, I'm a dirty man. At what point in time do we ever see ourselves as we truly are in the sight of a holy God, dust and ashes? And yet God has highly exalted us with the gift of his redemption, with the, with the cleansing power of the blood of Christ to declare us not to be dust and ashes now, but to be children of the Most High God, to be his sons, to be his daughters, to be his ambassadors, to be his servants. What a lofty position we are given to here. Now, James, when he writes this, he is seeking to correct spiritual an attitude of the spirit, an attitude of the heart. In verse 7, he goes on to say, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So we see here as you go through this list from verse 1 down to verse 9, we have the uncontrolled passions, the sins that we have sinned against God because of our own lust. We can blame the commercial world because it's always portraying something and trying to, to woo us and draw us away from God and back into the world. We can look here at this, this concept of, uh, of the unguarded principles, the unanswered prayers. I mean, all of these things are part and parcel of being drawn away from God and drawn into sin. And there in verse 6, the unbroken pride. The problem is the longer we stay living a sinful life in this sinful world, the, the times that pride just subtly creeps on in, creeps on in, creeps on in. The, you know, part of the problem, folks, we all think pride does this. Pride struts. Pride sticks its chin out. Pride sticks its nose up. I've got news for you. Pride really knows how to grovel. Pride really knows how to get down and pretend and go through all the actions. It can give you the voice. It can give you the tears. It can give you the pleading. It can give you the blood. 
broken voice and the quivering lips. And it's all very much a performance. Thank you. Thank you. But that's pride. Pride's really good at it. Let's remember, pride's been around a long time. Don't forget, pride made the most high God's chief servant a devil. Destroyed him and it'll destroy us. Hence the scripture so often would enjoy you and I that we need to humble ourselves. We need to acknowledge how subtle, how wicked, how devious, how, how schemed this is and all of it. It's constant. We said this this morning concerning the, the laws of harvest, the law of perpetual evil. Paul understood that in Romans 7. He said, that good thing which I would do, I do not. And that which I would not do, that I did. He said, but it's not me. It's sin. It's sin warring in my members. What did James just say here? From whence come wars? Where are all these things? From your lusts that war in your members. The unguarded principles. The unbroken passion and pride. The unanswered prayers. You know what he talks about here in Romans 4, uh, sorry, in James 4, 1 through 10? Spiritual shipwreck. Spiritual shipwreck. When you read through this list and you attach some identification to each one of these things that he identifies, whether he's talking about ye adulterers and adulteresses with our affection toward the world, you know something? We're wrong. It's sin. It's wrong. It's offensive to God. It nailed Jesus to the cross. It put him to death that we might have life. And yet so often the children of God, like a dog finding the dead carcass of an animal in the bush, we roll in it, we lather ourselves up in it, and we love the scent of it. We don't want to admit it to anybody, but the truth is there's still a part of this sinful heart that longs for sin and longs to rule and reign and longs to be in charge. And longs to have no accountability to anybody. But there is a God in heaven. And he requires accountability. In, he requires integrity and honesty, humility, brokenness. He requires the contrition of the heart of all of his children, not just some of his children. And therein is why we come to revival being a personal thing. We oftentimes seem to think of revival as a national thing. We speak of it historically of the great Welsh revivals. Did everybody in Wales get saved? <clears throat> no. The great revivals under D.L. Moody in Chicago and Boston. You know, did everybody in Chicago and Boston get saved? No. And it doesn't matter whether you talk about Whitfield or anyone else who, you know, who had mass revivals. They may have had large numbers, but revivals got to begin in the individual heart. And that's what James is attacking here. And by the way, we shouldn't even say James. This is what the Spirit of God is saying to these people. Not just as if there was a congregation listening, but as if it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation between the Saviour and the Spirit of God and this one precious soul who names the name of Christ and yet still is not where they ought to be spiritually. Hence, draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to you. 
If you're going to draw nigh to God, you can only draw nigh on his terms, not yours. His terms, not mine. What's his terms? We go back to Isaiah 57. What does he say? To revive the spirit, the contrite, and the heart of the humble. I want God to revive my spirit. I want God to revive my heart. I want to have a heart that's fully in love with Jesus Christ all over again. I'm longing for that warmth, if we can call it that experience that took place that night. I first heard the gospel and I prayed and asked God to forgive me of my sin and for the Lord Jesus to save me. And I can tell you in all honesty, I felt like this massive weight just fell off. And then to stand at the door looking out in this room of a Boy Scout Hall, a Girl Guide Hall, and see all these people scattered around the room, standing and kneeling and sitting and praying, and leaning over to the pastor and saying, what are they doing? He said, they're praying for you. The humility of it. The people who didn't know me could care enough to pray for me. People didn't know where I came from, where I was going to, what I'd been, what I'd done. Praying. It's humbling. You look around this room, though few in number, do you realise there are people here who give of their time and their energy to pray for you? To pray for your needs? To pray for your health? To pray for your strength? To pray for your safety? To pray for your family? to pray for your wife, to pray for your husband, to pray for your sons, to pray for your daughters. That ought to be humbling. To me, this is tremendously humbling when, when people tell me that they're praying for me. Humbling. The worth. God must have put some worth on us when he sent his son to die for our sin. But now in order to serve God, we've got to turn the worth upside down and understand we are not worthy. One of the things I've always struggled with whenever I go to churches and they ask me to do the Lord's table. And there in 1 Corinthians, it talks about, you know, whoso eateth and drinketh unworthily. I'm thinking, well, who is worthy? Isn't it wonderful that you get to the end of the, the Hall of Fame there, Faith's Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. And it talks about all these people. It's got some of the individuals and their deeds. And it's got this collective of, you know, Samson and Gideon and all these different ones. And then it has this wonderful little clause says, of whom the world was not worthy. God puts a value on the child of God that's sold out to him. God puts a value on the child of God that's humbled, that's contrite, that's broken, that's laid low. God puts the value. And if we continue on here in James chapter 4, he says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned unto mourning and your joy to heaviness. Is this an emotional thing? No, 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 no. Look at the very next verse. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. We live in a world today where people are continually vaunting self. It's all about exalting self 
You've got to put it out there. You've got to be out there. You've got to become a household name. You've got to advertise. You've got to recommend. You've got to... God says, no, no, this is what you need. The way up with God is down. He that would be greatest among you, let him first be servant of all. That's humble. When Jesus lay aside his garments, picked up a towel and a basin and began to wash the feet of the very men that would flee from his presence when he was arrested in the garden. That's humble. Can you imagine after they saw their Lord crucified, the contrition of heart those men must have had? The sense of shame at how they had betrayed him, how they had failed him, how they had let him down, how they had promised so much and delivered so little. But Jesus came looking for them. That's how much he loves us. I often say to people, you know, we say, when, you know, when I found Jesus, I didn't find Jesus, he found me. Jesus wasn't lost, I was. Powerful difference. He came to seek and to save that which he humbled himself and stepped down out of eternity, down from his glory we used to sing. This wonderful story that the Son of God should come down out of eternity into space and time and be found in fashion as a man and humble himself, become obedient to death, even the death of the cross, and all of it for us. We have nothing to boast of outside of Jesus Christ. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor the rich man in his riches. But the Lord says in Jeremiah 9, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knoweth me. You know him. It's a humbling thing to be able to say, I'm a child of God. Because he did it all, I didn't do it any. Are we a humble people? Are we allowing God to do whatever he needs to do in our life to make us, to break us, to shape us, to mould us? Remember the story of Jeremiah 18 of the, of the potter who worked upon the wheel and when it began to lose shape, he broke it all down and started again. And that's what God continually does in the lives of his children. We get to a place where maybe we think we've arrived and God says, no, I just think we need to just start again here. And he crushes us. And that's one of the other concepts that's found in that word contrition is to be crushed. If we really would have revival personally, it's going to be painful. In the world's concept, it's going to be embarrassing. In God's concept, it's going to be humbling. But in God's sight, it's also going to be honouring. It's going to be glorious because God is shaping Christ in us. And that's where real revival comes from. For you and I, from the spirit and from the heart, to be fully yielded to the Lord to allow him to use us for his glory. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. His timing. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you 
that you are the God who inhabits eternity and you have humbled yourself to behold the children of men on earth. The psalmist said it aright when he said, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? He made us a little lower than the angels. And yet you sent your son not to die for angels, but to die for us. Lord, it is humbling to realise how much you have done, how much you are doing and how much you are going to do for sinful men who simply turn from their sin and throw themselves broken, crushed, laid low, humbled under the mighty hand of God to come to Jesus Christ in salvation. Lord, thank you for dealing so graciously, so patiently with us. Many times we may think that you have dealt harshly with us and yet you still deal in tender mercies with us. We have so much to be thankful for. We're so thankful that you are able to revive us, that there's still a great work going on even now in the hearts of the children of men. Week after week here in this pulpit, the word of God is clearly taught and preached. And every time the word of God is opened, read and heard, you are speaking. In some cases, you are whispering with a still small voice. In some cases, it seems like you are are shouting to try and wake us up from our deadness, to shake us out of our apathy and our indifference, to cleanse and purge us of our fleshliness and our worldliness, our lazy sinfulness. Lord, I pray, help us. Do a mighty work in the heart and the spirit of each one here tonight. Revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.